0: Hi, hello everyone. Welcome to Aufhebunga-bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It's Wednesday, the 21st of July, and this is episode 200 Redux, uh, or actually uh, the second phase of the world in one country uh, in which we debated and discussed or had brilliant contributions on the question, if you were to study the history of only one country from 1900 to today and understand world history, which would you choose? So, Today is myself, Alex, and Phil. Uh, George is away; he's not participating in this. And we're joined by our top three: uh, David Adler representing India, David Broder representing Italy, and Dominic Loisder representing Germany. Uh, these are the top three. There was actually a top four. Uh, we had there was a. It was basically a draw for for third place between india and yugoslavia and that was uh lily lynch who's representing yugoslavia but unfortunately she's ill today and wasn't able to make it so um we'll try to make a couple of references uh to yugoslavia here and there as we go along um but otherwise it's just the top three uh i hope you got a chance to vote uh the voting more or less there was a kind of a clear top four in this germany italy yugoslavia uh and india with all the rest kind of in single digits but uh Phil, uh, these were all brilliant contributions, actually, uh, and they all brought kind of something different, and uh, from kind of smaller countries to larger ones. Uh, I was always kind of surprised to to learn kind of new things uh, going through these.
1: Yeah, there was it was uh, tremendous and um, far more um, kind of, I suppose, original than uh, the kinds of arguments that were brought to the table than I was than I was initially expecting, um, and also some really great, some really great kind of, um, some really great. Uh, ideas behind countries. I mean, the um, Lily's kind of use of Yugoslavia as a country that doesn't exist anymore, so a country that was broken, I suppose, in, um, by the 20th century, I thought was um, entirely appropriate. And provided a different kind of counterpoint to a country like Iraq, which has suffered, you know, kind of a a similar fate in some respects, and yet has remained a kind of um, more or less, not at least nominally, a unitary state. Um, I suppose one thing that did surprise me a bit about the vote was, um, well, the vote of our listeners was, I I guess I expected uh, more of the smaller countries to make it through to the final four. Um, so we had other kind of other contributions such as Mexico, Turkey or Taiwan, Iraq and Greece. I guess I expected more kind of global south um, countries ending up in the top four. Um, so with a partial exception, I suppose, of Yugoslavia and India, um, that wasn't the case. Um, uh, but there you go. I guess I guess that's uh, I guess that's democracy for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, revolting, bloody democracy. Revolting against us. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. yeah. The Italy is a partial exception as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we're, uh, we're
1: going get part into of the case you made, so we'll, but we'll get into it. We're
0: going to get into all this uh, in, in just a second. So just to cover uh, how this sort of ran and how it's going to run now. Um, one way that I think I someone said, I, it might have been George, I'm not, I can't recall now, but uh, another way to kind of frame this question is, uh, if all the history books in the world burned, except those of a specific country, which would you save from the flames, which I thought was a nice way to put it as well. Um, so if you wanted to salvage the history of the 20th and early 21st century, uh, what books would you save? Um, so, just to kind of restate what the initial kind of idea was as well, is that we had set out to exclude certain great powers. Uh, we wanted to ex- exclude the USA and Russia, to a certain extent, also UK and France, uh, because they probably wouldn't fit in Japan and China. Um, Germany sort of managed to squeeze in after uh, much lobbying, um, but uh, we'll leave it to listeners to judge whether uh, that was a, a wise choice or not. Um we, I kind of had hoped personally that uh, that in the top countries we would end up with a quite small country just because it'd be a bit cuter, cuter intellectually. Not like small countries are cute or anything. I'm not patronizing them in that way. But uh, but we didn't. They're all quite. I mean, they're all quite significant. Uh, either big powers or quite literally very large countries. Um, so let me just uh, introduce again uh, the the top three. Um, so I think, and these are the order I guess in which we'll do this, just for reasons of uh, reasons of the alphabet. Uh, so representing Germany is Dominic Loisder, who's in London. Hi, Dominic. Hey. Uh, representing Italy is David Broder, who's currently in Berlin. Hello. And representing India is David Adler, who's currently in uh, the former Yugoslavia.
3: Yes. Yeah, so I'm I'm trying to do my best to represent physically the other third place winner, the other half of the bronze Mm. medal uh, and spiritually, intellectually doing my best to represent my own candidate of India.
0: That's hugely magnanimous, um, but uh, you shouldn't be awarded extra points for that. Um, all right. So just to summarize, I guess, what these three were, um, what, the, what the main contributions from, uh, from the two Davids and Dominic were. Uh, so Germany highlighted industrial modernization and economic development and put emphasis on the transition from agriculture to industry, uh, also the political contradictions of modernization and also finally, uh, modern intellectual development, the development of the research university, which is uh, supposedly Germany's great contribution intellectually. Uh, Italy uh, focused on copying most more successful countries and uh, kind of in, th- in that way, it exemplifies its role as a periphery within the core. Uh, its Europeanness is an important aspect that David uh, Broder highlighted, uh, which kind of captures Europe's decline overall and its subordination to the United States. Uh, Also, its uneven development uh, and the relations of corn periphery within itself. Uh, Its intellectual contribution is its own focus on modernization and the failures of modernization. Uh, And then finally, also fascism uh, being a Cold War democracy. And then finally, uh, an EU hollowed out uh, democracy and and populism. And then thirdly, uh, India, David Adler's contribution highlighted independence and decolonization in the first place. Uh, the aspect of uh, planning, building new national capital, but also the failure of integration, uh, the persistence of slums. Um, related to that, uh, well, we're really summarizing that is uneven development again, uh, the the coexistence of billionaires and slum dwellers, of extreme inequality, and finally, in some sense, the disappointments of uh, of post independence life and the and the growth of bureaucracy. Uh, so those are those. I hope I uh, didn't uh, did a, did those justice. Um, and if you didn't, well, you'll just have to live with that. And uh, you'll have plenty of chance to speak anyway uh, in in the coming moments. So we're going to start off by uh, well, we're going to put Germany up on the pedestal, and uh, it'll be the turn of uh, David Broder first, and then David Adler uh, to address points to to Dominic uh, critical points. Uh, so try to knock him down, I guess. So David, what was uh, what was the problems with Germany?
2: Well. Um... I have to say I, I, I agreed with a lot of uh, Dominic's uh, framing of, of what the uh, key uh, trends of the uh, 20th century were, uh, in particular, um, in terms of, um, you know, industrialization, uh going beyond what he called the, the kind of peasant uh, state and finding a more modern political shell and so on. Um, and also in terms of the, uh, you know, the development of the social sciences and so on. Um, I think um, the the kind of key objection I would raise um, would rely on the periodization of what Dominic was talking about. Uh, because while uh, he said in the initial presentation that the, like in terms of like, is Germany an example of a peasant country in 1900, basically, and I think not really, uh, it's true, well, from what I'm perfectly willing to believe, at least, what you said that uh, the, the numerical, you know, the total number of peasants reached its peak in the 1930s. But you know, by 1900, um, Germany was already the most industrialized country in Europe. Uh, most of the population lived in cities. Um, I think even we could question kind of what kind of peasantry existed by 1900. Also, in terms of things like its political integration and education. Um, for instance, like if we think of um, if we think of things like uh, literacy, you know, the very large majority of all Germans, including peasants, were literate before 1900. Um, and uh, you know, I don't know particularly much about the the structure of the peasantry, but um, I mean, if you know, comparing to my own example, I mean, if you think of the the Italian peasantry in 1900, particularly in the south, like would be majority illiterate. Very high uh, levels of like, um, like uh, sharecroppers, uh, child labor, this kind of thing, um, and you know I think this is important not just because oh well you know Germany German peasants are like wealthier uh, so therefore unrepresented, but rather the process the processes by which um, you know in the title of Eugène Weber's book about France you know peasants into citizens you know that's a fundamental structuring fact of the twentieth century worldwide. And I think that um, in the German case, um, you know, there was already um, various, you know, very limited, admittedly, and not under kind of low inclusion democracy, but like already by 1900, like, I think most of Germany had, um, you know, some form or another of universal suffrage. Uh, and the other point I briefly make about periodization is I, I kind of think like, if we were talking about the 20th century, and we were having this discussion in 2000, then we kind then maybe the German case might be a bit more plausible in terms of um, modernization through violent shocks, then eventually arriving at a sort of slightly kind of post national uh, identity, the European project, and so on. But I think that the, the, the Germany hasn't really suffered the, dec- the kind of decline, the political collapse of other european countries in in the last uh, couple of decades i think that's also an important part of the picture
0: all right very good uh, david adler your your critical comments about germany
3: you know, i feel a bit i feel a bit bad because i think this is going to be you know such a walk in the park to take to task these two european countries and the obscene eurocentrism of their accounts of the period 1900 to 2020 and so i think to you know to make that case looking at doms account of germany this kind of ludicrous candidate, the best that he can offer is that Germany was an innovator, that there was innovation, but not representation of the period under review. So the things he's talking about are things that Germany, you know, um, designed, modeled, gave to the world, whether it's research centers or this mode of industrial production, but it's not representative of the world in terms of its experience of how those contributions, how those innovations then were transmitted and diffused through the world, which were much, you know, much more complex. And so I, you know, fundamentally, I agree with David's approach that even if you focus on those innovations, even if you, you do take seriously the idea that, okay, where these things began uh, is crucial to understand their later development and transmission diffusion around the world in that period, we're still only talking about uh, less than half of the period under review. And I would make the case that you know, Germany, if you look at the latter half of the 20th century um, is just is an exceptional experience. Um, the way that germany lived you know lived through this cold war and the re- reunification uh, the exceptional experience it had of you know uh, sustaining low wages but decent growth exporting its uh, you know underdevelopment to countries like italy where that's under review um, You know, the ways in which that experience in the second half of the 20th century, and certainly the 21st, is so exceptional and continues to be so exceptional, I think uh, makes it really hard for me to believe that Germany is a credible representation of the period under review. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to take cheap shots, but, you know, it's just thinking about population-wise, and the ways in which, you know, the experience of most of the people in the world under this period uh, from 1900 to 2020 in the global South, as David is saying, is a much later uh, development, a much more kind of shot through with all these contradictions. Uh, It's at the, it's the brunt of of these empires that are being, uh, that are emerging and diffusing out from Europe uh, where two of these candidates uh, are are, are being offered. So I think that, you know, we have to distinguish clearly between countries that have had a profound impact on the world, you know, you mentioned this question, which book do you save? And it's sort of, which book do you save to understand what transformed the world in that period? Or which book do you save to understand what the experience of most people in the world was under this period, right? That gave the fullest expression of all the colors of the developmental experience, um, of the full range of regime types, uh, from socialism to kind of wretched neoliberal capitalism to experiments in social capital regulated uh, markets. You know, that's really, I think, where where the German case really falls apart. Uh, and so making that distinction, I think, and I'll put this back to you, mean, you know, how do we make that distinction between innovation and representation when we think about this vast period under review?
0: All right. Uh, over to you, Dominic. I mean, it gets two lines of attack there. One is that uh, Germany didn't really have that kind of quintessential experience of turning peasants into citizens that it was already quite developed uh, by the turn of the 20th century. Uh, And then secondly, that Germany was much of of a leader economically and also an innovator. And that that is not representative of the history of for for most peoples in the 20th and 21st century. So Dominic.
4: I'll try to address them both at the same time. Um, Although David Broders was really the more meatier argument, I have to say. Um, Just to, I mean, The point is not necessarily that that Germany was, um, you know, that backward a state at the time. The point is that it was an unevenly um, and incompletely developing country. Um, And that that kind of um, problem, the problem of partial modernization and the crisis of partial modernization not only caused the, the events afterwards, but prefigured it in many ways. I think that also solves the issue that David addresses that you know, Germany isn't quite like India or other developing countries. They go through the same thing that Germany went through um, in the start of the, first, uh, of, the, of the 20th century. In other words, you have this, um, this, this huge surge of modernization, um, you know, urbanization and industrialization and agricultural um, masses flocking to urban centers With the promise of mass democracy and and economic uh, growth and social mobility, but really what's happening is an entrenchment of um, entrenchment of agricultural property rights on the one hand, and a consolidation of the bourgeois revolution. I think that's why um, Charlie Meyer famously referred to the nineteen twenties as sort of the the global uh, Thermidor. In other words, So there was this this pattern of um, a great promise of developments being betrayed by Simple new forms of repression. In other words, I think that's very much the the, the failed hopes of um, development in large parts of the global south as well. Um, As for some of the 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 things that David Broder brought up, I mean, it's it's an empirical question of you know whether whether how how large Germany's peasant population was at the time. But as I say, it's really more about um, Germany being this prototypical and uneven. hybrid systems, so to say. Um, and the other thing is, look, I like the analogy of, of which books would you say? Um, another way of putting it is, how would you explain the 20th century to extraterrestrial? I think if you used it through, um, if you started with India, if you use India as the prototypical example of um, a 20th century state, the uh, alien just end up terribly confused, I think. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna save some of this for my rebuttal of David later, but uh, all the things that India isn't totally unique in, um, as I said, is prefigured by the modernization elsewhere. It's not an issue of what Germany gave the world or how Germany transmitted its uh, thoughts and institutions elsewhere. I mentioned that in my case because it's quite relevant you know, as a sort of secondary argument. It's really about how was this the first case of the a beginning of a pattern that emerged throughout the entire century. And one last point is that I think approaching the, one you know, very inelegant way of approaching the question is simply to list a few things, a few isms, and then sort of check them off, um, off the list. Um, that's perhaps less elegant than saying which country was at the forefront of these developments in the 20th century and which country gives a sort of a vista of these events um, that would make sense to an alien, for instance. Um, but even if I were going by that strategy, then all the things that David mentioned about India, for instance, of socialism, uh, nationalism, fascism, of course, you pick them off in Germany's case too, and in some cases, um, in their nastiest form, um, and in their original form. So I'll just stop there for now. But um...
0: All right, very good. Uh, so we're going to park that, and uh, I guess, listener, you can keep those in mind, and we're going to return to, to those themes and maybe other uh, glaring lacuna in the, in the arguments made. Uh, and we're going to turn to Italy. So Italy's up on the pedestal and it's a turn firstly of uh, David Adler to knock, knock over Italy uh, and then, and then Dominic Loiser. David.
3: So I think basically two main trends to find this period. And I want us to not forget that when we're not just talking about the 20th century, we're talking about 1900 to 2020. And I think that that's really crucial. So as far as I understand, or as I, you know, as I would propose it to listeners of the podcast Two main trends, I think, suggest themselves. One is you know, the Marxist dictum that the developed world gives an image of itself to the developing world, right? And in that case, I think the Italian uh, narrative, uh, the, the history that David Broder spins for us, I think is really compelling in understanding the ways in which Italy's chasing, chasing, always chasing, always looking there, you know, of course with this other more subaltern intellectual tradition, but where the dominant political economic story is that of emulation but that misses the second half of the story. And certainly Dom's account of Germany gets nowhere close, which is that the second half of the story, I think you can make a pe- compelling case that now we're in a world where the developing countries give an image of themselves to the developed ones. That it's in the developing world, the global south, where climate change is most viciously felt, where these new questions of the relationship between let's say authoritarian capitalism and ethnic divisions are most visible. You know That whole trend of the earth and the sort of political economy of the world, and I'm here with this great scholar of the, of the Brazilianization of the world, you know, that's what we're talking about here. The, you know, the thinking about the ways in which that Marxist dictum has been turned on its head. And that's where the Italian case really begins to fall apart. Now, if we're talking about the 20th century, I think it's a very compelling story that David Broder tells us. But if we want to think about the mutations of neoliberalism in the late 20th century into the 21st, if we want to talk about the explosion of inequality not you know sort of uh, regulated or kind of terse turgid inequality but explosive inequality it has to do with massive uh, dispossession uh, and uh, you know, accumulation by uh, a new kind of feudal class. There we really have to look to countries that are further afield beyond the borders of Europe and certainly beyond the borders of the European Union, which I think is why it's so crucial to have their representation. So for that reason, I think, uh, you know, Germany, I, dis- I discard almost out of hand, but Itali- Italy, I think it, it really gives us a powerful picture of the contradictions that are involved in development, its failure the experience of the diffusion of a certain model of political economy into countries that are more, let's say, structurally um, peripheral or oppressed by their neighbors, but it doesn't get us all the way because Italy will never tell us the story of a Brazil or an India, et cetera.
0: All right. Very good. Uh, Ass kissing will get you nowhere, but uh, you know, that's where we are. Uh, All right, um, Dominic Loizner, your comments, uh, your critical comments about Italy. I think it's a fairly solid argument. Um, you know, it, it's,
4: it, ha- it has a lot of merit, unlike the India argument, because it does it tries to flesh out what was distinctive about that particular country and its historical experience and how that experience is shared by other parts of the world. And you know, David Broder does emphasize this developmental issue and tries to frame it in terms of the core periphery relationship both within Italy and Italy's relationship with the core of Europe as a periphery country. I think that's, um, there's something to that argument that I would say that it's not unique in that sense. I mean, you find those relationships uh, in, in many regions in the world. So where there's an internal um, socioeconomic divides that you could describe as a core and peripheral relationship. And that does that, that does say a lot about the country, but perhaps not much about, um, how that country relates to the 20th century and to the big historical trends of that century. And then the the second part um, about Italy's relationship to to Europe as a periphery country, um, and as a periphery country within the industrial core of the world, is, is interesting again, but that I would say is Eurocentric, and I'm not someone who used the term very lightly, but that is indeed, that is, a very unique. That, that's a very experience for Italy, but it's not salient to um, other parts of the world. And my point is that if you look at what happens in in the global South uh, after the, the the Second World War, you see the emergence of modern states and wars fought over controls of that state and then social, and economic, and military conflict arising over the, the the process of development. In very abstract and simple terms. And then you have these big social diseases of nationalism and fascism that um, uh, crop up here and there. And all of those things, again, in abstract form, occur uh, in Central Europe, I think, in the, in the beginning of the 20th century. Though Italy has some of those aspects too, I would say. The emergence of fascism is is one thing that David also speaks about. So on the whole, I think it is a, it is a powerful argument, but I would say that the things that Broda, David Broder stresses are not necessarily unique to Italy and therefore can't it doesn't make for a unique and sort of emblematic case study.
0: All right. Very good. Uh, so yeah, that's basically the, the developing world is now in the vanguard and that's why Italy isn't uh, a good choice. And the other reason is that the internal core periphery relations are also not unique to Italy and probably stronger, uh,
2: elsewhere. David Broder, uh, go ahead. Well, I, I'm glad that I was not caught in the crossfire of personal beef and indeed, each of you were very kind, but, um, yeah, I mean, I'll start with uh, what, um, um, well, I'm going to start with the point about Eurocentrism, also in re- reaction to what David Adler said earlier in response to to Dominic, in the sense that I don't think that, um, you know, I mean, what I said in my initial presentation was that Italy helped us understand the last 120 years as a history of European, so, well, end of European rise, loss of European hegemony, and loss of um and, and then european decline and i think that simply is a structuring fact of the last century of of, of history and, and can't be overlooked or ignored and i think like i think we're on difficult terrain if it comes to the idea that the country's um like the kind of popular experience needs to be representative purely in terms of kind of you know mass of of suffering or something i mean on that grounds also we'd have a, a big problem in terms of like you know, India's very peripheral participation in both world wars. So, I mean, like, if we want to tell the history of the 20th century, looking through one country, like not just which country's um, own internal modernization is most representative of the whole, but which country's history is that through which we can read the last 120 years of history. Then I think that's uh, that's a big problem of, of David's, which we'll uh, go on to a bit later. So yeah, so I think that the the, the 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 another problem with the Eurocentrism argument is that there is a, um, you know, as um, David mentioned, uh, part of my initial argument was that uh, Italian history is uh, particularly worth studying and interesting because of the uh, because of emulation. And because of the the intellectual discussion in Italy, right from uh, sort of sociologists at the turn of the 20th century, if we think of people like um, Gaetano Mosca or uh, Pareto, or whoever, the, the idea of emulation as like a, as the structuring framework for uh, like public debate and intellectual life means that Italy and Italians have produced a way of reading the world of reading modernization in a way that is internationally influential in a way which isn't true of for example India so I think that um, while uh, and you know I mean I think like of course Italy is not unique uh, it's the unevenness of its development is certainly a lot more than other wealthy countries um but um you know I, th- I think it's not uh, I think it's not unique but rather uh, has you know it does exhibit the patterns which allow us to, to – to, to, um, so it exhibits patterns which are indeed generalizable. So although I think the popular experience isn't necessarily representative, uh, I think it, it goes through the different political regimes. It has the chasing of uh, modernity, the chasing of a uh, role in European hegemony, which then declines. Uh, so I think that's why, uh, why it uh, is indeed uh, still useful. Excellent. Um,
0: it's heating up, um, actually quite literally, but also, also this, this is good. Uh, we're going to put finally India on the pedestal. So David Adler, uh, is going to be attacked from, uh, from two sides. Firstly by, uh, firstly by Dominic Loister, uh, and, and then by David Adler. So Dominic, go ahead.
4: where to begin. Um, I think the, the most obvious flaw in this argument is that it, it doesn't really contain any um, premises. There's no inference. There's some description, but really what it consists in is simply stating that it's important to look beyond the the industrial core of the world, the North Atlantic and the United States and the the EU in this case, or Germany and Italy for that matter. And that uh, simply looking at them can't give you an entire experience of the 20th century, but simply stating that doesn't make it so. So there needs to be some sort of reason for that. And as I try to point out, and I think I'm quite grateful for David Broder expanding on, on that part of the argument, which is also part of his argument, namely that it's more about re- regime-type generalizability than popular experience. So the content of the politics and popular experience isn't as important as the the kind of big macro macro-political historical trends and regime-type trends and transitions that countries have gone through um, and have suffered through sequentially throughout the century. And those are really important. So I think even if there was an argument that, um, and again, there isn't any, that would make use of that extreme difference in popular experience, India being a colonial country, a colony that has to fight for its uh, its freedom then undergoes its very, very unique um, nation building process which again is, is extraordinarily um, bizarre and unique, and I think there's no historical corollary here. Um, even then, I think there would be a greater merit to the argument that regime types matter more in trying to tell the, the period from 1901 to 2000. Um, yes, and I would say that, again, to the, to the extent that he does touch upon these regime type issues and on the issues of um, you know, urbanization and, you um, the failed promises of modernization and partial and uneven development again uh, they are prefigured elsewhere and India is going through what other countries are going through uh, at the same time so he has to make the case that India's experience with that with precisely that kind of um, transition is unique and somehow more representative than let's say Korea's experience or Taiwan's experience or um, Southeast Asia's experience uh, of that particular type of transition and I think um, I'm not sure whether I can make that case, but it's not made here, so we can't really address it.
0: All right, uh, David Broder, your turn to attack the the Indian representative.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that well, part of the part of the answer is what I is uh, part of the uh, attack line. Let's say is what I laid out already, which is I, I don't think that. Um, uh, the political forms of India or its political thought do uh, sort of point the way of the future to wealthier or Western or previously hegemonic countries. I mean, I, I struggle to see the, the, the evidence of that. In partic- I mean, in particular, because, I mean, if we ask, like, is today's India showing holding up a mirror to the future of the West... I mean, India is currently ruled by the largest mass political party in the world, whose which is mainly defined by religious chauvinism. So, I mean, I think like, I mean, of course, like we can talk about, um, you know, the the, the forms of, of of mass democracy in in in, in independent India and, uh, and mass parties, uh, and so on. But I, I don't really feel that. Uh, one could honestly say that they either reached the kind of uh, some sort of high point in or or pinnacle uh, in terms of like uh, elite formation, the forms of organization, the forms of communication, really anything like that. Uh, And then at the same time, um, you know, if we see in uh, the Western world, uh, the decline of mass parties and atomization and so on, then India doesn't show that at all. And I find it hard to see how the political situation of India, like, I mean, apart from like a generically discussing, like the strength of far right populism and so on, I, I don't really see what, uh, from current Indian experience, is likely to point the way uh, for the future for, uh, for Western countries.
0: All right, there's kind of different lines of attack there. Uh, David Adler, you can uh, reply to those.
3: Yeah, I think that we're really having um, a debate across very different premises. And I think that maybe I answered the question and took on this candidate for a totally different reason than someone like Dom or even David would have. You know, my, my understanding was not regime change generalizability, and you know, nor was David's. David's point was that Italy passed through and, and took on and would participated in some very key moments throughout this. That if we read the history of Italy in this in this period, we'll understand the things that you know major countries passed through in a way. And what I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to think about the most representative country, yes, in terms of the experience of the world, because I think that's how we have to read it through the experience that the people had around the world. So to take even, you know, starting there, the absence of the colonial story um, from from Italy uh, in this period, to in Germany in this period, I think is a gaping hole in the stories that we're telling about this period, where for most of the world, the experience of being colonized, moving towards independence. And I would contest Dom's claim that the experience, even of the most kind of vicious forms of partition, the specificity that attended to the British departure, were that particular. I mean, if we think about what happened in the, in the, the decline of all of these empires and the ways in which the infrastructure that they left or some marks of a kind of progressive colonial administration, other marks of the kind of traumas of um, disintegration that attended to the, the, the liberation process. These things are an experience that is so general across, across most of the world. So I totally agree with Dom that I don't think India, if we look at, you know, is it the vanguard in this way for most of that period um, that it is representative? In fact, I think that it's precisely as uh, India, as the object as on the brunt, of, of other kind of either colonial, literally colonial forces or neo-colonial, as in the case, uh, you know, the, the part of the story that I tell about India is this brutal shock therapy administered by the Bretton Woods institutions in the 1991, which is an experience that is hugely generalizable. Across most of the, most of the global south and the ways in which that, that you know rapidly transformed uh, the political economy of the country and led to uh, the, the you know the rapid rise of, of, of inequality across the country a thing that I disagree with David I think is being reflected back um, elsewhere in the world so you know, I'm excited to hear from our hosts I, I you know hope they do intervene because I do think that um, this point about India and whether we do have, uh, uh, as I was making the point before, whether countries like India, Brazil are showing an image of ourselves to the world. I mean, David, I don't don't know how you can possibly say, oh yeah, this generic uh, right-wing populism thing, ah, just kind of throw that under the rug. That's a huge, major transformation that's happening in the ways in which you know, capitalism is governed, the ways in which it's justified, legitimated. And I think for those reasons, someone like Narendra Modi doesn't at all feel specific to me, but feels like a forerunner in a certain type of, um, let's say authoritarian capitalism or you know, ethnically uh, motivated uh, mass, mass party in the, in the resurgence of, of the RSS in India. So whether we want to judge it by having participated in so many of these important moments To answer the initial question we were put to, which storybook of this, which history book would tell you the history of the world? I would say that India is a place where so many of these phenomena have collided, uh, where empires have collided, even where it sits geographically. I mean, the two of you are stuck up out there on the North Atlantic. We think about where India is, the relationship it has to China, to the US, to Europe, to the old empires, to the new empires, you know, if you want to f- track through the, the the timeline from 1900 to 2020, you have a hugely expansive and a really rich, colorful view. But if you want to burrow down into the experience that people have, which is how I understood the question to be asked, right? If I'm a, thinking about a person living through this period, in which country would I get the best sense of the kind of contradictions and the crazy phenomena that swept through the world? I still think that that the Indian case uh, holds sway, but I totally agree with both of the critiques in that sense that David Broder and Donna have put forward. That I don't think uh, whether it's regime change generalizability, or whether it's uh, uniqueness, or whether it's purity of the you know experience. I don't think that's what it is. It's not purity. It's not rep- it's not you know the kind of paradigmatic place. It's the place that was on the other end of the diffusion of other paradigms of political economy, and therefore experienced the kind of mad um, translation and uh, sort of f- f- failures and complication of, of, of receiving a lot of those paradigms and trying to implement them on a local level, resulting in the kind of fractured experience of urban life that I put forward on the initial podcast. All right, excellent.
0: Uh, those are all really good. There's so much uh, to to delve into. And there's some kind of obvious ways that we could divide these up, uh, some sort of axes, which actually split these countries up, you know, whether it's a European or not, whether it was an imperial power or not, its experience of, uh, or to what extent, experienced the First and the Second World War or not, uh, whether it had a sort of hegemonic position globally or within its region or not. So there's many different ways to uh, divide this. And also just that question about how representative or what we mean by representative of world history, which uh, I think is like one of the main bones of contention. Do you mean to represent the mass, the experience of the mass of humanity? Do you mean to represent uh, the most important social forces, the most important uh, political dynamics, etc. Lots of different ways to divide this up and to kind of make your selection. But I'm um, Phil, um, you've been listening along. And uh, I guess just to, to start this off, you're gonna put some uh, points to well, you go ahead, actually.
1: Yeah, some really fascinating arguments up and down. And particularly on this question, which I suppose it's helped to clarify the whole process of this exercise that we've tried to put together, which is the basis on which we're trying to undertake um, these kinds of claims. I suppose I wanted to put one thing to um, to Dominic, which uh, the two Davids didn't really push him on, which was this point about the university. So he um, kind of, uh, he rested qu- in the initial presentation of why Germany is the country, a lot of the argument rested on the claim of the modern research university and particularly its diffusion from the Germany to the U S um, and the importance of that as a kind of, as the um, progenitor of modern social science, intellectual development and so on. But I'd make a case and I want to hear what Dominic has to say that the modern research university should perhaps be added to the list of Germany's many crimes um, insofar as what it's, uh, you know, kind of wreaked upon the world You know, bastions of conformity, bastions of privilege and prejudice, um, particularly in the case of the U.S. and Germany, so bound up with um, intellectual elite culture, um, elite politics and also geopolitical rivalry. Um, And also, I mean, in the case of Germany, but other countries as well, the modern research university has been so bound up with projects of national and cultural chauvinism as well, um, reaching right down to the present. So. I'm not sure that the um, making the case, because I understood Dominic when he made the case originally, it wasn't the influence of the modern research university, but it's intellectual productiveness and it's importance to uh, developing kind of genuine insight into the world, which made the modern research university so important, but it seems to me maybe it's um, made things more opaque. And like I say, it should be added to the list of Germany's crimes rather than, um, um, you know, the making the case for Germany.
0: Yeah, Dominic, if you want to go ahead and respond directly.
4: It's a great point, And I, uh, I know it's not entirely facetious uh, in, um,
0: I know the PhD system is a
4: 19th century relic and, um, somehow the, the long arm of imperial Germany reaching into the future to torture billions of graduate students. I, I totally agree with that. I should say that my argument was a bit of a hat on a hat. So it was, the, it was the story about what I think is the defining I as a materialist and uh, sort of closet Marxist, I suppose, um, at least in my framework um, of the world, is the most important trend of the 20th century, which is the material productive development of large parts of the world. So that the big break with the rest of history, which is people um, escaping the Malthusian trap, growing incomes and living standards, etc., and transitioning from agriculture to industrialism. And then as a separate issue, there's the influence of um, you, know, you could say human capital and the growth of knowledge and human capital and how they influence developments um, directly and indirectly through technologies developed. And you can link that to high modern science, which reached its peak in late, like in Imperial and Weimar Germany. It's sort of an afterthought, although I do think it's important. I, but as for your point about, uh, isn't it, um, isn't the modern research university um, sort of a drag in the sense that it's, it, it's subject to elite conformism and um, uh, it's, it's a hotbed of nationalist chauvinism. It, it, the, the modern university is, is, these tendencies are a function of the system they're embedded in. So the university in Britain and in the United States um, is embedded in a very different you know, social cultural culture than let's say the university in Germany is. Um, social mobility is less, less, much less wound, much less a function of having a university degree. In Germany, for instance, it's are countries that have vocational training systems and that don't rely too much on the you know, churning out of um, of graduates to um, maintain a certain type of production and to maintain a certain ideological superstructure, you could say. Um, but even if even if it were that that way across the board, you could still make the argument that that makes Germany a great way to view the 20th century. And I mean, even in the sense that it prefigures and causes some of the worst aspects of our modern, uh, of modern life. I think you can make that case. It's not, so my argument isn't somehow a love letter to Germany, it's, it's just a statement of fact. I think that most of our world, our material world but also our intellectual world is a product of German crisis um, and German failure in a way. Um, which was almost pre damned because Germany's position now and its failure and destruction are what then provided for its integration into, the, into a Europe in which it could then, you know, um, peacefully fulfill this, these, these these tendencies.
0: All right. Yeah. David Adler, really quickly, you want to reply to that and then I'll come back to Phil.
3: Very short. I don't know if your listeners can tell how much Venom Dom, who's a dear friend of mine, has, has brought into this conversation uh, reserved just for me. But I, my point is to say we agree on this, Dom. Like there's no way I, we agree that Germany, that if you want to read the, that be, you know, where, where these things came from, if we want to look at their origins of these transformative inventions, these innovations, the way that they transform the world, then Germany is the world leader there. But my point is to make sense of this period. It's less important to look at where it began, who invented the steam engine, and much more important to look at how it diffused through the world, how it was implemented, copied, transcribed, translated into contexts further afield away from that place. And that that's gonna give us, I think, a much richer account of what, I know we don't wanna talk about the experiences, but I think the point is we've, we're arriving at a clear sense of kind of two different ways of answering this question. I don't think that we disagree. I just think that it's much more interesting um, it would be much more interesting. Uh, the story that I will tell my children when I give them a book—I don't—that wasn't the prompt, was it? That I would give an alien uh, uh, to understand is not, you know, who started it. Which fucking dude with a neck beard and a hat invented? You know, you know sat in Yenna and wrote a book. It would be, you know, how did most people in the world understand that innovation and either try to replicate? Uh, rev, you know, rebel against or transform in some process that yielded, I think, you know, the world as we know it.
0: Yeah, I don't know what we're not sure what fictional universe we're in, whether it's Fahrenheit four five one and books are being burned, or it's an alien film. But um, anyway, yeah, use whatever metaphor you prefer, Dominic. Uh, very quick reply, and then I'll come back to Phil. Uh, yeah,
4: yes, I mean, there's a David is very good at flipping back and forth between different kinds of, you know. Um, argumentative mode. So so on the one hand, he's trying to say that, no, it's the experience that matters and how this was metabolized by the rest of the world, which is orthogonal to my argument that Germany just prefigures all these trends in addition to actually causing them. But the point is about how how it prefigures them. And then he says, well, India has these generalizable uh, trends that you find everywhere else, the partition, etc., etc., In that sense, it wouldn't be emblematic if you can generalize all these trends, if they're happening elsewhere. You still have to make the case why India is a good example, is the best example of doing so. And uh, to the extent that you then point out the stuff that is unique about India, you can't generalize those things. So um, I think either of those modes is a dead end for that argument.
0: Phil, uh, did you want to come back with something or or I'll just maybe raise something really quickly, which... um maybe firstly David Broder can reply to um, though this might be a bit softball but there's a there's no, a I, I there, 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 let me just let me just do this one really quickly is about territorial integrity and state continuity because that isn't the case across the board and many of our different contributions I mean to make a shout out to Yugoslavia of course uh has moments of kind of unification and of course famously uh breakup and balkanization and whether you decide that's representative or not I guess is is up to you but here we have kind of quite different examples of uh, you know of Germany uh, and India and maybe Italy is a slightly different case so maybe uh, David you want to talk about that and then uh, how relevant you think that is and then the other two I'll bring them in
2: well I mean Italy has the advantage over both Germany and India of having been a single independent country throughout the period in question I mean I think Germany was was four countries at a couple of points Um. But um, I mean, I think the um, I mean, I'll go back to that. I I think I think that the when I say that, um, you know, when I made my objection to 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 Dominic's saying, well, Germany may be a you know source of example and innovator and so on, but in the 19th century, not the 20th. I mean, part of the reason why that isn't just sort of pettifogging or whinging about the the you know. the exact year we begin and stuff is because if indeed I could also go a few decades into the 19th century and in a sense uh, in, in the German case as well, um, then I could also bring up the problem of Italian national identity and unification and so on. And the, but, but I think that the the, the most important process isn't the, the mere fact of, you know, the, the, the formal independence or territorial unity of the country, but the actual conversion of its, of the population under its rule into into citizens, into uh, population integrated into uh, into its bureaucratic life, into the education system, into uh, democracy, and and so on. And in Italy, those are processes that take place starting in the twentieth century, not in the nineteenth. Uh, you know, most uh, in so- southern Italy, most uh, ch- primary, most uh, children didn't go to primary school. Uh, until the 1920s there was a law in uh, I think 1869 1870 for compulsory primary education for two years and I think by 1900 that had reached about 70 percent um so so yeah so my my argument really there is I think uh, I think that if we want the peasants into citizens uh framework then that applies uh better to uh, the Italian case Look, I mean, in the 20th century
3: yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no doubt that that's the case. I, I think that if you look at, you know, I completely agree with that, David, which I, is why I think, you know, I do feel, I do feel a bit, uh, given it's just the three of us, of kind of bearing the burden of representing, let's say, global South countries in general. But I think if we want to take that developmental question seriously, Dom, for those of you who are not watching, is shaking his head already, uh, then starting from a place of kind of more serious and extreme poverty and, and those problems of you know, even more severe underdevelopment, Thinking about the development trajectory of, of India, I think is really helpful and really interesting. And you know, this I want to really emphasize that the experience of Italy in the latter period under review, which both of my other contenders are hoping to sweep under the rug, they don't want to talk about the period 1990 to 2020, they don't want to talk about that period. Why? Because it's been dominated by basically a single trend. I mean, Italy is in a period of a 30 year long stagnation, and it's impossible, you know, that's a very specific experience of a country. And I think, uh, of course, riven through with sort of crisis, generalized crisis, but I think it's impossible to talk about the, the, the history of the world in that period by speaking to Italy's 30 years, stagnant living standards and the same about Germany. I mean, the way in which Italy and Germany are locked in the, in the horns of this uh, Maastricht treaty framework and, and, and the monetary union that is the Euro, like it's both specific, and boring to look, you know, thinking about global history to look at the the last 30 years. And I know that's a, a kind of denouement for this argument, but I just think that if we think about Um, not where we started, but where we've ended, you know, where are we today? Um, I think this would be a different argument if you'd asked really about the 20th century proper, but I, you know, I put it to both my, uh, I think we can make the conversation even more interesting if I put it to both of my uh, contenders here, how they make sense of that, that question of either stagnation in Italy, or or, or, or those last 30 years in general, and how it represents the world
2: in some important way.
0: Yeah, stagnation and relative decline, how important are they? David Broder, and then uh, I'll come to Dominic Loeser.
2: Yeah, I mean, this brings us back again to the question of um, emulation. Because in Italy in 1900, anywhere in Europe in 1900, no one would have any doubt that uh, Germany, over the last decades of the 19th century, since it had provided a model of state building. And if we uh, look at, you know, throughout uh, Italian 20th century history, whether it's the fascist regime or whether it's um, kind of post-war, you know, mass consumerism; whether it's the European project. In each of those cases, you can say, "Well, the Italian basically public intellectual debate was centered on the idea of a, a model which Italy will sort of yearn towards or try and move towards and fails." And then I think that the problem with this idea that the that that's been reversed—that now countries like um, Brazil. I mean, I think Brazil would be a better case than than India in the sense that its like political culture is much closer to to European examples and and, and so on. Uh, but unfortunately, Alex couldn't uh, grace us with his uh, participation. But I, I um, actually think
0: Brazil is not a good would, would be actually a terrible uh, it would be a terrible case. I, agree, well, that, I, don't, that, I didn't do it.
2: Actually, <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, so I think the problem with you know when I talked about uh, you know. Uh, Modi not being holding up a mirror of the future is because, of course, M- Modi's India is an important example of right-wing populism and rising nationalism and national capitalism and these kind of things. But the political forms of India are extremely unlikely to spread to currently wealthier, more advanced, whatever you want to call it, countries, in the sense that BJP is a party of, what is it, 150, 200 million members? Governed by a more or less explicit uh, religious, religiously motivated ethnic chauvinism, and like I think there, like that isn't the model that other like that countries like Italy are going to go down. Like, of course, you, you know we can debate like to what extent that will be drawn from its own history through you know parties of fascist roots, but which are no longer explicitly fascist and so on. Um, but also, I mean, the other part of that is that um, what, we're, what we've seen in the, the final, in the end of the 20th century is the decline of European uh, preeminence. Of course, you know, it's long predated by the rise of the US and so on. But that includes the hollowing out of national sovereignty. And I think that, you know, I think it would be very difficult to paint a picture of the decline of the nation state looking at India okay I mean maybe there's some counter tendencies during the, the crisis its tensions with, with China and so on but I'm just not very convinced that 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 is uh, that is a trend mm-hmm. which is broadly applicable around the world I wanted
1: right. to so I wanted to um, to put Dominic's point to David Adler um, about India so I think I mean um, you made you made like uh, a spirited case, David, for and you've uh, taken on the mantle of representing the global South in the competition. Um, but uh, Dominic has you know kind of raised the point that when you make the case for India, you do it by dissolving India's specificity away into the kind of the morass of you know the experience of the global South over the last hundred and twenty years, rather than actually making the case for India as some kind of prism for refracting a wider experience and um, so i wanted i wondered if you could address that point specifically but also i mean you know there's one thing you haven't mentioned and wasn't picked up in the back and forth which is um india's experience as a democracy because that's the thing that makes india very famously stand out um to so many other post-colonial states, the fact that it survived as a democracy rather than sliding into military dictatorship as so many other post-colonial regimes did. Um, And to that extent, it isn't, in fact, representative of, um, of the experience of so much of the Global South, which is what you've rested your
3: case on. I'm not sure I agree with that, Philip, because I think that what we're, you know, so first of all, I think your question combines well with David Broder's oh, dumps already raised his hand to tell me to screw myself. Um, so, uh, so, you know, David Broder's point uh, about Europe's uh, relative decline. I take that well. Right. But what's the what's the flip side of that? The flip side of that are countries in the developing south, you know, galloping forward and finding their own confidence you know, being part of, for example, BRICS, what does BRICS represent? Represents this new kind of global south uh, emergent coalition that's willing to challenge exactly those, you know, NATO powers, let's say, right? So I think that, you know, in that sense, David Broder and I a- agree that it's important to look at these important trends, but I'm just looking at it, I think, from the from the other side uh, in certain ways. And so, Phil, I think, you know, uh, or to Dom's point about what is kind of the structuring logic of my case for India? I really think it's about just, the way in which it tells so many of these stories. I challenge the idea that looking at Indian democracy, of course, it's exceptional in its size and its diversity, but it it tells a whole story about the disenchantment with democracy. It does actually tell the story of the evisceration and the hollowing out of the state, David Broder. I mean, I do think that India does tell that story as well. So I think my point is to say that India is telling more stories than the other contenders here. They're not, you know, it's not about the contribution this country is making necessarily. I take David Boder's point uh, that, you know, perhaps Modi isn't, uh, you know, Modi is not coming to Italy, although that would be an interesting discussion that we could have. I think there are more commonalities between a guy like Modi and other right authoritarian characters like a Bolsonaro or even like a Trump and the ways in which they marshal ethnic and religious chauvinism in service of their nationalistic pride. I think that that is a representative um uh, dynamic, But mostly, Phil, to respond to your question, I'm just talking about the ways in which India tells more stories that occurred over this period. It's not just a story of fascism or industrialization, modernization. If we're trying to distill 1900 2020 to three things, as Dom has tried to convince us there are only three things that composed this 120 year period, fine. Germany can win. What I'm trying to convince you is that if we want to look at the whole beautiful rainbow of phenomena and political economic transformations that took place in this, that both in, in, you know, include all the ones that David Broder is describing for Italy and so many more of being a colony, of national liberation, of ethnic division, of trying to live in, in a democracy and being disenchanted with that democracy, about you know, structural adjustment Inequality. Right. That these doesn't, sound like, a, that, that, that that sounds, doesn't sound like
1: a beautiful rainbow, David. That, at all. It
3: also, it also sounds
0: suspiciously postmodern. These multiple <laughs> narratives. I, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. Dominic loser quickly uh, respond to that. Well, have
1: to remind,
4: <laughs> have to just remind the audience that David and I are friends, and I do feel blessed to be his friends. Uh, but um, we're just competitive in that way. My, I actually wanted to address uh, Broder's point, David Broder's point about first of all about the whole timeline issue, yes of course if you go back further into the ninth century it becomes a bit difficult conceptually, but I do think that the point is that high, high modernity finds its peak in the first decades of the 20th century and those are the relevant ones. As to his point about relative backwardness, I think that's key because I think that's a good rebuttal because then he says why then not Italy or let's say even Spain or Portugal, which had an even larger gulf between, you know, very backward um, peasant populations and industrial urban centers, and which carried those um, highly divided societies even further into the century. Uh, that's true, but, but the point is is not that, um, not Germany's relative backwardness or relative to other countries. It's how, just how large the Contradictions were internally. In other words, if I could show, if I could show my entire argument, if I can could, could condense to a picture, it would be horses drawing, uh, like pulling a gun, essentially uh, a very modern um, piece of artillery that was built in the Second World War. So here you have something that presents this, this, this. Um, so the, the epitome of European civilization in, in a sort of morbid way, because. It, it, it's meant for killing people, but it's also a technological achievement um, that sort it's of drawn by horses because it, it happened that Germany didn't have the industrial capacity to actually produce enough um, um, uh, motorized uh, vehicle, motorized um, units. And when they arrived at Dunkirk, they found themselves astonished that the Brits had used their trucks to build pontoons. They had never seen so many trucks, in other words. And this continues to the end of the war. And that's why they lose the war. It's, that's very particular set of circumstances where you have um, extreme, par- extremely partial modernization. It's, it's the epitome of that process, which, um, as I said, it happens elsewhere throughout the entire century. My point is not um, that Germany is somehow you know, uniquely um, representative of the European experience, and that the European experience is therefore, is more important because it spreads to the rest of the world. It's just that Germany is sort of the, um, represents both the eclipse of European modernity and a confirmation of the basic model of modern growth. And that latter part is precisely the model that the global south struggles with um, in the latter part of the century. That's really what my point is about.
0: So actually, this has turned out really interesting because a lot of the discussion has been throughout this, and also your initial contributions about modernization, about the agrarian transition, about uh, uneven and combined development up till today. And uh, actually interesting, one of the other contributions uh, about Taiwan by Nick Johnson uh, quoted um, Eric Hobsbawm saying that actually, you know, in, in retrospect, the, the key thing about the 20th century will be that and not the conflict between communism and capitalism, which will uh, appear more as a, as a bit of a footnote. Uh, in in the history, so it's quite interesting that we haven't actually touched very much on that at all, um, and we haven't even touched very much on the first and second world wars of the well, of the age of catastrophe, to use Holtzman's term, as well. Um, are we all being maybe a little bit too clever, and we're missing kind of some of the obvious points? Um, I'm going to come to David Broder. Um, well, 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 go ahead, Phil. Phil.
1: Well, I was also well, I was actually to put a point to David about this because David Broder, that is, um, when he said um, about. India not really having the experience of the Second World War, because I thought that was unfair given the um, how important the Indian Army was to the to um, the British Imperial project in the Second World War, and so many Indian soldiers kind of fighting in Europe in Burma against the Japanese, the importance of kind of um, of that story for Indian independence, um, and also the um, the Bengal Famine as well, um, which was uh, you can't kind of separate which in the in 1944, which you can't separate from the experience of the war itself. Um, So all of those things seem to me to, uh, I guess, to reinforce the case made for India, given the fact, I mean, okay, India was never occupied, um, but it's certainly the kind of, the martial history of India does, it plays a really important part in the second world war and therefore strengthens the case for India in terms of its experience of the, and the role that it played in the 20th century as part of the British Imperial war effort um, makes the case for India surely um, rather than for either Italy or Germany.
2: Well, um, I should emphasise that uh, again. Like I mean, as you you mentioned the the, the Indian troops and also of course the, the the Bengal famine. I mean, I'm not saying that that India was like unaffected by uh, World War Two. And in fact, I mean, the Bengal famine alone would count for you know a greater amount of. Uh, human suffering than anything that went on in Italy, even during the defeat. Um, But I think that even so, I mean, I don't think that the Indian experience of World War II is very representative of the overall importance of World War II uh, in terms of its effects on the uh, societies involved, principally because um world war ii and to a lesser extent world war one are mainly remarkable in terms of total mobilization um and uh and a kind of um and in a sense a kind of democratic uh integration um whereas you know india uh obviously uh india's participation in world war ii can be you know seen as as helping like you know pave the way for uh well, I mean, that's a very euphemistic way of putting it. But like, obviously, there was a connection between India's participation on the British side in World War Two, and the independence that came a few years later. However, that's very unrepresentative of the colonial world uh, in general. Um, so I mean, and I think the uh, Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, that's basically my point. Yeah. I mean, yeah,
0: David Adler
3: no I, I I'm walking now into uh, uh, the pomo trap that Alex has set for me. but I just want to you know <laughs> emphasize this point that when I think about I'm lucky to be in a runoff with Italy and Germany where these narratives about World War II are indeed so ossified and don't permit so much complexity, I think that emphasized Phil's point about the ways in which you could you could be on the kind of winning side of that war, but the, lo- the losing side of the colonial bargain that was being made there. I mean, I think that, you know, you look, this is my point about u- uniqueness and representation. It's, it's, it's about, you know, are we pitching, picking countries, you know, it's, it's about satisfying a kind of sufficiency criterion, right? In trying to make sense of kind of so much complexity in this period, are we telling a story that, that permits us, or are we picking a country that permits us to tell the multiple stories that are overlapping and often contradictory that I think define this period?
0: David, Broder really briefly, and then uh, and then Dominic, Loiser, and then we're going to close this off with a, a final uh, final round of answers to one question.
2: But, but the point isn't to just represent the to also represent the 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 suffering, the forgotten losers in history, and so on. The point is that India's independence at the end of World War II is unrepresentative of the global South and of the colonial world.
0: Uh, Dominic, closer really quickly.
4: Yes, I mean, I, w- I would agree with that, first of all. and I would say that this, this sounds to me like sort of a typical graduate student who says, I'd like to respond to these ossified narratives by overcomplicating and problematizing something. I'm not going to tell you how I will overcomplicate it, but I think that overcomplication is a virtue instead of clarification. So what you would have to do is to look at the extremely complex experience of the 20th century and find the most efficient answer. So the, the the thing that can explain most of the complexity with the least amount of effort. And I think taking the most complicated, strange country of one part of the world to explain all of it is probably self-destroying.
0: All right. Uh, that was all very interesting. We're going to each of you is going to have one minute to sum up, um, but actually do it in response to a question I'm going to put, which has already been uh, kind of thrown about here and there. Obviously, when we put this uh, to, to all these contributors, the, the question obviously asked you to sum up and synthesize uh, or, or try to find a country that was representative of periods which are radically different, right? The period before the First World War, uh, the end of the liberal order, um, in many cases, agrarian societies, all the way to the end of history, and maybe even the end of the end of history. So um, lots of tie in there. And I thought a lot of it would end up being about kind of picking which theme is more important. But more than just that, I think it ends up being an argument about what you really mean by representative. What does to be representative of a a whole period um, or several periods of history actually mean? What does it mean to try to capture that? Does, Does it mean to capture the experience of a larger mass of people, of the leading social forces, of major intellectual developments? What is it? So one minute, uh, we'll go in, I guess, reverse uh, alphabetical order of the countries that you're representing, which sounds complicated, but there's my three of you, we'll <laughs> so we'll know what's going on. Um, it will be, uh, yeah, so we'll just do that to, to close off before Phil and I will have our okay. kind of judges moment. The,
2: the, the question is to, to define what, we're, what the questions we're seeking to answer.
0: Yeah, that sounds really meta, but yeah, basically, what, what does it mean to be representative and why your country therefore fits that bill? So what, what aspects are you choosing to, to sort of highlight, right? Um, which I think has already been kind of uh, hinted at as, as, as through the discussion. So uh, finally, so David Adler first, uh, followed by David Broder and then Dominic Loister.
3: Yeah, I think throughout this, this call, I've tr- uh, this discussion, I've tried to make the case that India is a worthwhile candidate, especially in the context of this runoff, because it's telling the multiple stories that define this period. I take Dom's point about being a you know, awful 21st century graduate student and just being a splitter. But I think my point is very simple. That if you want to really understand all the different stories and their contradictions and the ways in which uh, they are positioned for the vast majority of humanity at the receiving rather than the kind of driving vanguard of history, I think this is critical. And specifically focusing on, on the back end, just how far many of most of the world was in terms of agrarian societies and underdevelopment. And then crucially thinking about the latter period with both of these other contenders have kind of sought to avoid and thinking about what is the last 30 years, what is happening, what are the transformations that attend to not just the 20th century, but the early 21st. And there, I think. Looking to the global south is simply critical. Even if the the particular mass party configuration that India has, it's not perfectly representative. It contains many of the key stories that I think are going to be dominant that are already dominant and will continue to dominate this 21st century as we move forward.
0: David Broder on Italy.
2: I think it's uh, illusory to try and find uh, a single country which is representative of the experience of humanity or to try and back up the case for it in this in this uh, contest, uh, in terms of in terms of the the suffering received or the or the um, the deprivation and so on. My point critical of Dominic's is not that well Germany sort of didn't start poor enough or with enough illiterate people to to, to count. It's that you need uh, or, you know that this is not kind of. Um, yeah, not, not enough uh, suffering and backwardness. It's that you need that within the story of modernization. And what the Italian case allows us to do is to trace how a overwhelmingly peasant society, although one with extreme internal um, division and regional splits and so on, developed into one of the very wealthiest industrial powers in the world and then declined while also seeing a steep decline in its national sovereignty in its mass democracy and that and so on. I think that these trends uh, the you know the the the, what David Adler sort of dismissively refers to as as you know just all 30 years of stagnation well that stagnation matters because that's about the loss of political agency it's about the loss of state sovereignty it's about the loss of cohering uh, modernist projects and so on and I think that you need that that is the uh, the, the, that is the kind of defining uh, experience of our time uh, and and which um, makes uh, m- makes uh, Italy a more representative example. All right, finally, Dominic Loesner on Germany.
4: Well, I want to echo what David Broder said about, uh, this is sort of a pointless intellectual exercise, but an interesting one, nonetheless. It's a bit like trying to you know, provide a map of the world and uh, realizing that you can't do one-to-one map. Uh, it has to be condensation of, of the world. And I think the the right map would also contain something of a warning to the future. In other words, it would point to areas of the map on, on, the, on the map conceptually, in other words, where not to go. In other words, if you see the 20th century as some sort of grand um, catastrophic failure from which we escaped um, on the skin of our teeth, then the story of Germany is sort of a cautionary tale. I think that's why it's it's such a useful, um, a useful example for future generations to both to make sense of our century and to sort of make sense of how to continue with uh, the, you know, the progress of human civilization if you
1: want.
0: All right, that was uh, brilliant the whole way through. Uh, I thought found that really fascinating. Uh, Phil, I think you you did likewise here, nodding vigorously. Um, it doesn't want to say anything. Um, but, but rest assured, he did. Um, then thank you, uh, David Roder, David Adler, and Dominic Leijer for being such good sports. And... Uh um actually keeping the bitching actually to, to too little actually could have had a lot more uh a lot more attacks we'll we'll do the next one of these that are for a 300th episode we'll call it the the bunga games and it'll be far more violent than this uh maybe suit more suited to its subject matter actually um that guys thank you so much for for participating now phil and i are going to go off and have our little uh, uh judges moment to decide it's, this is obviously we, we put it out to the people to to vote on the on the you know for select from the top 10 um but but at the end of the day we we decide this is a sort of managed democracy we're taking our lead from uh, from russia here actually more than or, or really maybe um
1: well, bosnia there was well, pioneered, bosnia. pioneered managed democracy before putin uh, the liberal trusteeship since the end of the war there in the 1990s uh, managed democracy all the way down so exactly
0: so it, this is more of a bosnia um which uh, which unfortunately
2: didn't have representation today but there we go I think it's more like Italy. Everyone votes, but it has no influence on the final (laughs) (laughs) line.
1: European Union, there we go. There are so many models of inspiration for the the Bunga dictatorship.
0: All right, cheers, guys. All right. So thanks again uh, to the, to those three guys. And thanks to all 10 contributors Uh, to listeners. If you want to see those again, they're all on YouTube, both the the whole video, as well as, um, as individual videos in a, in a playlist. So if you want to dip back in and kind of remind yourself why, uh, you know, whatever, Taiwan or Turkey might be really representative of uh, of the history from 1900 to today, uh, you can find that there. Um, and if you do do that, uh, subscribe to our YouTube. Uh, we do post all our episodes there. You probably don't listen to them very much on there because there's not very much video content, but we might have more in the future. It'd be helpful to have more subscribers on there too. So uh, do click subscribe on YouTube. So uh, now it's uh, uh, Phil and I to have our, our judge's moment. George George's away. He's uh, exempting himself from from this. I'm not sure why.
1: He's but, not uh, taking responsibility for making, making the choice. Well, exactly. <laughs> He's yeah. washing his hands. That's why, <laughs> washing his hands, whereas we're in the position of having to exercise Bunga dictatorship. So we take our lead from the voters, but the final choice is ours. Um, so... so- I mean, do, yeah. do you
0: know who who you're gonna pick? I mean, we we can discuss know, a little man. bit I mean, in I a guess, second, but go, yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: well, I don't know, man. I mean, let's. I mean, I suppose I'd have to talk myself through it to make up my mind.
0: So let's do that. Yeah. Uh,
1: so I, th- I mean, there was there were things which I thought you know, kind of uh, maybe telling omissions in some of the cases um, you know that were made across the way. Um, so, for instance, like um, the, I mean, it was kind of surprised me, I guess, in a way that Dominic. Well, okay, roll back one. So, one big thing was the: what does it mean for a country to represent the history of humanity for the last 120 years? And um, you know that was a kind of a big ask. And it, I guess you know, looking back on it, on the back, on the off the back of that debate, um, perhaps we could have been more kind of sharp in what we put to the contributors, because what came up in this end of the this process was: is it supposed to capture? you know, the bulk of humanity's experience? Or like is it the, supposed to capture kind of some, uh, yeah, like India, being sh- simply by weight of population? Like the average,
0: the average human uh, yeah. in the world, yeah.
1: The average human in the world? Or is it supposed to uh, distill something about large-scale processes that shape um, human social historical experience in some way that perhaps is a bit less immediate. And then that gets to the question of, do you want to, is it, does it happen, is it where it happens or is it where it originates, which is some of the back and forth between, um, between our final, our three finalists. As it Yeah.
0: And, and in fact, the question of the average human, I mean, especially for the first half of the 20th century, you'd probably say that it was somehow, not we can say it was a non-historical appear, uh, experience, but, You know, you're not right at the center of things, right? Because you're probably still a peasant somewhere uh, in India or or China. And to what extent are you swept up in the forces of history at that moment?
1: Yeah, though, indeed, though, I mean, also, I mean, the first half of the 20th century, um, the Western world, the industrialized world is also far more um, weighty in population terms, by comparison to the developed world. It's kind of later in the 20th century that it catches up. So, I mean, I guess that kind of demographic shift is also part of the story that we didn't really touch upon. So, I mean, I think so, I guess. And with...
0: also just one point about that also is that if you think about it, this is the midpoint in the period that we've selected is 1960 um, and not in the yes. way that we'd probably tacitly assume 1945 is the midpoint yeah, between the short we were, 20th century. Kind of,
1: that's right. We were thinking in those terms, but you're right. And it is. it does kind of give a different perspective on all of that. Is uh, 1960 is the cutoff point. And, and again, than...
0: the, the point that I, that I raised, but uh, I think that everybody took up um, already without me having kind of prompted people to do it, um, both here and in the, the, the initial um, uh, pitches, I guess, was that, you know, it ended up being very little about communism versus capitalism, yeah. and actually relatively little also about the first and second world wars, um, which in probably yeah. maybe in retrospect, you know, or maybe we can discuss this, actually, because there's an argument for, as Hobsbawm argued, that capitalism versus communism, especially in, the, in its form that it took in the, in the Cold War um maybe will in retrospect be somehow de-emphasized
1: yeah i mean i guess it's hard to i mean only if you squeeze china out of the picture which we've done by the way in which we've set up this um process right so i mean it's impossible to restrict communism to the short 20th century off the back of the fact that um a party uh styling itself as a communist party has been so important to um hauling China into the modern world and is um, one of the most powerful actors in world politics at the moment. So to that extent, I think, you know, it's um, that story is, uh, you know, it can't be kind of uh, quite cut cut that cleanly but i mean one thing i suppose that i you know which i was surprised that dominic didn't talk about more because he could have was um you know germany's experience of being occupied of being kind of territorially divided so that yeah. the ideological divisions of the 20th century were kind of territorially inscribed in the division between east and west germany the fact that you had that regime type the experience both of the kind of authoritarian eastern bloc as well as of um, cold war liberal democracy um all of that, and indeed the image that he talked about, which he said if he could summarize his argument in an image, it would be um the Wehrmacht using horses to draw cannons, and he tweeted this image um as part of the process online if people want to go take a look, so this was um howitzers or artillery units being dragged by horses um onto the eastern front, um but he didn't kind of talk about the eastern front or um or the insanity of um of uh, germany's kind of colonial campaigns of conquest but also ethnic cleansing i mean that's such an important part of the yeah. story for germany that um the post-war population of germany so much of it is ethnic germans expelled from eastern europe or fleeing in advance of um fleeing in advance of the red army um which is and, you know in that and, experience it, and it, it is representative
0: and indeed, of, we didn't really discuss population as a whole, population management and fluxes, which is hugely important to the 20th century in a way that it really it wasn't to preceding periods in history. I mean, it's a major kind of development of of, of for the human race, effectively. And in the 20th century, it was is especially violent of irredentism, ethnic cleansing, yeah. population transfers, yeah. uh, where you know if you can think of of Greece and Turkey, the population exchange uh, in the 1920s, and indeed, obviously of genocide, which uh, you mentioned. I think Phil and reference to uh the the well to the bengal famine i guess um and uh which is not directly i guess a genocide but
1: um yeah but the kind of concentrated episode of um of mass death linked to kind of um, not only mismanagement but also political decision making on the part of in this case the british imperial authorities of the day and that takes us to india and so again i mean you know there were points which i thought um Adler, David Adler could have included, which he didn't, um, you know, say emergency rule under Indira Gandhi. Um, So and that seems to me like um, I mean, that kind of experience of authoritarianism, of outright dictatorship. Um, That also seems to me a very important part of um, the Indian story, Um, or indeed the kind of the many um, low level insurgencies, which the Indian army has been involved in, um, often, you know, with tremendous brutality against both native peoples and Maoism, so um, you know, there's uh, all the Indian-Pakistani wars. So, yeah. I mean, I know, I know. obviously, you know, not, not everything can be included in the story, but it seems to me um, it's worth drawing attention also to the omissions, uh, because I guess it tells us something about the choices that our presenters made. So at, at the end, for the end summing up point, David Adler rested um, the weight of his claim on the idea of the fact that, um, that, that, most of people were on the receiving end of certain kinds of processes and this is what makes india um the prime candidate for being the history of the last 120 years in one country so the idea of humanity as object rather than a subject of history um and i'm not sure that works for in you know i think that doesn't really work because i'm not sure you can make the case that it, in that italy and germany were really in charge of their dest of their national destinies, and I mean I think that, you I mean, know, that though, is though, proved I- by fascism you know if anything is this kind of desperate flailing of a country to kind of fully take charge of its national destiny but i think th-
0: this is this is precisely why we've made the initial exclusions that we did right that yeah. we didn't include the us a country which was very much in charge of its destiny throughout the period and in charge of the destiny of many other countries as well as the uk as well yeah. as france uh, as well as germany uh, as well as japan to a certain extent anyway yeah. so there's a reason we didn't include these countries for any listener who's sitting there and going well you didn't you still should have included yeah. the us that's but the I mean, reason i
1: mean i guess the point i saying is though that you know david adler was trying to make the case for india by saying that india was at the receiving end rather than driving them yeah i think you know that doesn't make the case for india's against italy and germany no but it does weaken the
0: german case i think to a certain degree because the german because because uh, german hegemony over europe uh especially at the the end of history uh and it's kind of in and its intellectual leadership in some ways makes it not quite Representative, I think this is a point which David Broder landed, I, I, I guess, against Dominic Loisner, which is precisely that for most countries it is emulation, and that's the the experience of of the well, period in in at hand.
1: Well, what I was going to say was, I suppose that the you know the image of uh, you know the fascist experience of Italy and Germany, and it's interesting, in fact, that we have, you know, the two kind of um, archetypal fascist states or two countries which had archetypal fascist states made it through. Um, through the voting to, um, to the final. Um, and in this instance, you know, I think that that experience, that experience speaks to the fact that they were not in charge of their destinies, um, that fascism is this desperate attempt, you know, this flailing kind of hysterical attempt to steer the course of history. On the, on the part of um, the nation in question and you know, catastrophically failing um, in both cases. And so it didn't work to make Adler's, David Adler's point. Um, and so for that reason, I think, for me, overall, it, I think David Broder clinched it, I think, in making the case for Italy. It seems to me that Italy, um, in terms of being kind of liminal to use the really wanky postgraduate um, um expression because um it was a promo expression that it's kind of uh, that if you have a country that's in that kind of gray zone it's a peripheral country within the yeah. core and as david broder says it takes us up right up to the last 30 years experience of the hollowing out of um the hollowing out of uh, the decline of modernization and the hollowing out of processes of um popular participation of growth of national cohesion um all of that seems to me to make the case for, um, to strengthen the case for Italy, capturing it, something which is both about the West, you know, which is an important part of the last 120 years, obviously, but also um, the wider world as well.
0: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, it's obviously we should say not perfect because it doesn't experience, uh, experience occupation kind of at the end of the Second World War, but not in a sustained uh, colonial fashion. Uh, and it doesn't experience decolonization in recent independence. Um, its whole national moment is in the 19th century, so it's not perfect. Um, and I think probably this experience shows that there is no country yeah. which truly is able to capture both the experience of the core and the periphery yeah, to be. But like
1: like Dominic said, you can't have a one to one map, right? I mean, that's not possible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you need to choose something. Uh, and, and there may be an element of recency bias uh, in, I think, in, in plumping for Italy, maybe, I think, as we seem to be doing. Um, in, 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 and not just because it's called so Alpha Bunga Bunga and, <laughs> yeah, and all that kind of thing. We have a chapter in the book called Italy, live, The Country of the Future. That would be a bit of Soviet. recency bias because precisely that the period of the end of history after the Second World War is... Um, very Italian, I think, in a, in, a, in a general sense, and certainly for, for much of the West. Um, but if the, if the period from 1900 to 2020, at least, is in large part European and uh, necessarily Eurocentric, then picking a country within Europe, which has often been an emulator and often the object of history, um, and keenly felt, as David Broder's contribution Uh, testified to that its intellectual production was concerned precisely with its own internal backwardness. Um, In some sense, that does represent uh, world history, or at least, uh, as we said at the beginning, um, if you burnt all the other books of all the other countries, you'd be able to glean from Italian history, this uh, kind of uneven and combined development uh, within itself. um, And it struggles to overcome that quite cleanly.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So is that is that what we're doing? Is that is that where we've where we've I think landed? think we've
1: talked ourselves into Italy is not only the country of the future but also the country of the past.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to say, I really didn't want to end up on Italy just because it felt too on brand and too obvious. Um, and in fact, if the, if, the purpose, if the voters if the voters hadn't put Italy sucks. forward, put hadn't put Italy forward, and this had been a competition between you know Turkey. Uh, Indonesia and Yugoslavia big, uh, it would have been a, a whole voters. different discussion yeah this is, this that's is... <laughs> what
1: they've been doing in Italy for the last 30 years exactly again.
0: that's a good point to end on then we're blaming the voters uh thank you once again to all the contributors it's been really brilliant I hope that this is useful to people also um it's obviously was a little bit academic you know maybe but you know ultimately uh, it, it's maybe a useful resource in the future to dip back into to uh, reflect on what uh, what this history has been, um, and also maybe foreshadow what's uh, what's coming next, which is what we like to do here on Alpha Bunga Bunga. Thank you very much all uh, for listening, and that's it from us for now. Uh, catch you later. Bye bye.